At the beginning of December, I had the opportunity to talk to the ideological company founder and CEO, Mike Shatskin, about a lot of things, uh, from his time at UCLA in the late 60s to his work on the George McGovern campaign, and of course, his over 50 years worth of experience as an expert and consultant in the book publishing industry. Amongst other things, we discussed Mike's views on some of the massive changes that have happened in the book publishing industry over the decades, where the industry is today, and some directions that may be going in the near future. You may hear a bit of crackling in the background from time to time, and I just thought I'd note that there's a complete transcription of the interview, including some useful links to various resources that you can find at leanpub.com slash podcasts slash backmatter. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, this is Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Backmatter Publishing Industry Podcast, I'll be talking with Mike Shatskin. Mike is a veteran book publishing industry expert who is founder and CEO of The Ideological Company. With over 50 years in many roles, from bookseller to author to agent and consultant, Mike has been regularly quoted on issues concerning digital change and developments in the book publishing industry by leading media outlets, and has been featured and cited on NPR, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, amongst others. This is a particularly interesting moment to talk to Mike as he is currently in a professional transition period, remaining involved in the book publishing industry, but shifting his focus to launch an organization called Climate Change Resources, which is being founded with a mandate to recruit people in the fight for a livable planet. In this interview, we're going to talk about Mike's career in book publishing, his views on a number of important issues the industry has faced over the years and is facing now, and his climate change work. You can read Mike's blog on digital change in publishing, The Shatskin Files, at idealog.com. I should also note um, the recent development that thanks to the dedicated work of Mike's collaborator, Simon Collinson, you can now read posts from his blog going back to 2011 in ebook format. And I'll put a link in the transcription of this interview where you can find those books. Um, you can also read Mike's other blog on climate change and politics on Medium at Mike Shatskin, and you can follow him on Twitter also at Mike Shatskin. So with that all said, thank you, Mike, for being on the Back Matter podcast. Thank you very much. It's a great summary. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for what I call their origin story. And I was wondering if you could go way back and start uh, by talking a little bit about your first experience with, with books and how you got interested in that world. Well, I really didn't have a lot of choice, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, my dad was in the book business uh, after he, he was on the Manhattan Project in World War II. But after the World War II, he Went, went to work for the Viking Press and then was at Doubleday and then was at Macmillan. So I grew up with a father who was uh, all in on the book business um, and who was uh, a genius and an innovator um, and also a lot of fun and a really good father. So uh, so I was steeped in it and I knew I knew people in it. and I knew things about it. Um, from a very early age, I think that the the seminal thing that happened to me and in, in in my whole life, really, but all, but very much for the book business, is that when I was about seven or eight years old, I was playing with a typewriter, and my father decided that, um, as he put it, we have to teach him to type the right way, or he will teach himself to type the wrong way. And they found a business school in the next town. And they asked the lady, can you teach an eight-year-old to type? And she said, you know, I'm really not sure, but let's try. And I learned, went for three months, and I took lessons, and I got up to 42 words a minute. And I quit the lessons, but I'd learned, as my father wanted me to, I'd learned the right keyboarding, uh, a keyboard technique. So I typed everything from the age of eight going forward. And that meant covering the Little League when I was 11 or 12 for the local paper. Um, you know, I was able to meet the deadlines because I could dash home from the game and type it up very quickly. 
And as a result, you know, as Malcolm Gladwell says, 10,000 hours. I had my 10,000 hours of writing a long, long time ago. Um, and so that facilitated everything in my life, uh, certainly made being in the book business a lot more um, comfortable. Um, and uh, and I think that that's the single thing that is most responsible for getting me where I am. Um, then I worked, went to work for my dad in a family distribution business after the McGovern campaign, which was my detour out of the book business for a couple of years. Um, and I there was a sales and marketing manager, and I, I had to run the sales force and um, put put the books into the stores and deal with all the accounts and deal. And we were distributors, so we had lots and lots of different publishers uh, that were involved with us. And so I learned from a lot of different people. And then after that, um, at the age of 31, I went into consulting because I had enough knowledge and enough contacts and a small enough budget, not being particularly greedy about money. Um, so I was able to, I didn't have to work 100 hours a week to pay my bills. And I was, and I had enough knowledge and reputation to be able to do things. So, um, so starting in, I've described myself as having been gainfully unemployed since 1979. Um, if I could, if we could pause there for a moment, one thing yep. I wanted to ask you about was, I, I gather you grew up in, in New York. Yes, we're um, in New York suburbs. In New York suburbs. But you decided to go to the West Coast um, for university, and you were at UCLA where you wrote for the paper there, I believe, the uh, yes. Daily Bridge, yes. I think. And yes. um, you were at UCLA uh, as a person studying politics and interested in politics at a very interesting time um, at, in the late 60s. Yes. Um, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that experience. I mean, I know it's, it's sort of hard to sort of narrow things down, but, you know, what what was it like at UCLA at that time? Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, well, UCLA was not Berkeley, right? So Ber Berkeley was the, and my dad really wanted me to go to Berkeley. That was, I was aiming for Berkeley and I missed, I ended up at UCLA. Berkeley was a hotbed of political activism. UCLA, not as much, except everything was in the late 60s. And, um, and so uh, I got involved uh, in politics really because of UCLA. I was writing a, a weekly column for the UCLA Daily Bruin when the 1968 political campaign started. And I was for Robert Kennedy. And Robert Kennedy put um, 12 students on the California delegation. I wasn't one of them, but my best friend at UCLA whose campaign for student body, pre unsuccessful campaign for student body president I had run, um, was one of them. And so that connected me to the Kennedy campaign. I left the ambassador an hour before he was shot. Um, and the and he died on my 21st birthday. It was all very, very significant. Um, and then at the end of that summer, the remnants of the Kennedy campaign pulled together for George McGovern. And... Um, Pierre Salinger, uh, who was a Californian and who had been John F. Kennedy's press secretary and then was briefly a senator from California, was the key guy organizing that. And because I was attached to, uh, because I was a student leader and uh, columnist for the Bruin and had signed an ad for Bob Kitt, Bobby Kennedy and was connected to some of the people in the delegation, I got to meet Pierre. I worked for Pierre at the Democratic Convention in 1968. 
So while all my friends were in, outside in the park demonstrating, I was inside the McGovern headquarters at the Sheraton Blackstone um, and meeting other people like Frank Mankiewicz, who became a, a friend after that. So uh, so I, I, I was there for a lot of it. It wasn't, it wasn't bloody or scary at UCLA like it was in some places. I mean, it was bloody and scary sometimes at Columbia. It was bloody and scary sometimes at Berkeley. Never really was at UCLA, but um, but it was exciting, and it was certainly a a, a great time. It was a great time to be at a at a university. There's no doubt about that. And when you and then from there, I went straight to the McGovern campaign, more or less. I was going to ask what what kind of work did you do for the McGovern campaign? I imagine writing well, was probably a part of it. Well, writing is always a part of everything. I mean, it, the, 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 it is it is really, really a, a well a gift, but I would also say a weapon, a tool, to be able to express yourself quickly and 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 uh, comfortably in writing um, and being able to type fast and always have and I always had an electric typewriter until there were computers. So, yeah, that, I certainly did a lot of writing, but no, I, I was in charge of organizing New York State campuses for about a year, and I was very proud of the fact that we were sending 500 students a week to the New Hampshire, work in New Hampshire when, Massachusetts, when Boston was only sending 800, and our, our kids had to travel a lot further to, to get, and pay more for the bus to get there. But, um, well, actually, we didn't, they didn't pay for the bus. The campaign paid for the bus. But the but uh, then I was uh, then I ran six congressional districts in upstate New York for the primary, and then I was a delegate to the 1972 Democratic Convention, and then um, I was my political career. And it was over when that campaign was over. That was the end of it. And why is that? Um, well, you know, part of the reason why was I I developed a mentor named Richard Wade, who was actually the inventor of the field of urban history. Um, he was a he was a historian, and and um, I met him in '68 when he was in Chicago, working for Daly then um, as a doing building scatter site housing, um, and he was on the McGovern campaign. And then he moved to New York um, in '71, where he lived for the rest of his life. And he, and he and he was a he was a professor. He liked smart young people that were interested in history. And uh, even though he was never my professor, we had plenty of conversations. In 1972, after the campaign, I was up for the job of the organizing director for the ACLU, and Dick said, Mike, don't take it. And I didn't get it. But, but his explanation was, if you work in politics for a living, you will face a time when you need a job, and you will do something that's not necessarily exactly what you believe in, because you have to be employed. He said, much, much better to do your politics as a volunteer. And then you decide what you're what you're going to what's worth it and what's not. And he had always done that as a professor um, and he'd been involved in a lot of politics, but he was always as a volunteer. And so uh, that that worked out for me and getting into publishing worked out for me. And I have and, and particularly when Dick was alive, I would occasionally do some work as a volunteer. But that's what moved me away from it as any kind of career choice. That's a really Fascinating story. Uh, thanks for thanks for sharing it. Um, Good. Uh, I I guess my next question is so that now so in your life now you're a you, you're a consultant um, for the book publishing industry. What kind of what kind of work did that entail? Did you have to go out to find clients? Did they come to find you? 
No, you have to. No, you definitely have to go out and find clients. It started. It's changed over time. It's a very, you know, I have to say, it's it's opportunistic. There's a there's an opportunistic element to it because what I had done when I worked for my dad for five years was sales and marketing for a distribution company that had 125 different little publishers that were its little and large publishers that were its clients. Um, I. The natural thing, I did the natural thing, which was I first started getting clients who were companies distributed by other companies. And my job, my consulting job was to help them get the most out of the distribution relationship. And so that was that was uh, something I could convince, particularly uh, non-U.S. companies, go to Frankfurt, meet them, be their guy in New York to help them get the most out of their distributor, it was kind of a natural thing. And I got a few clients at that pretty early, and that sort of got me going. Then in the mid-'80s, I got hired by um, – well, well, what happened was I managed a rock and roll band with my wife. I learned a little bit of recording business. That was also a labor of love. When that broke up, um, I chanced on a situation at John Wiley & Sons where they were doing their first audio books – and because and I was I, there was an unconventional sales manager named Dick McCullough, whom I've written about. He was a great guy who was willing to who liked eccentricity. And I was it, I was eccentric. I didn't didn't have a didn't wear a suit. I didn't uh, uh, I was I was just not I had long hair. Um, I was a bit of a hippie, and you had to sort of have faith that. Um, I actually had great knowledge that you wanted to have around. It was otherwise seem a little strange. But Dick was perfectly willing to have strange. And because they had this audiobook thing that was an experiment, it was helpful to him or he was to sell me as a guy who knew something about recording because I had managed a rock and roll band. And boy, there was no real connection there, but he made it stick. And that got me into Wiley. And when I got into Wiley, they were they were a scientific and technical company primarily who were just beginning to get into trade publishing. And very quickly, a lot of different people at Wiley found that I could help them. So I actually had four different clients inside Wiley. Um, and that gave me some interesting insight into what was what the, into the company and made me able to help them in other ways. And that lasted for, I don't know, five, six, seven years alongside other things. And that got me into – that gave me corporate legitimacy, which my prior clients hadn't because my prior clients, for the most part, have been small publishers who were distributed by large publishers. And I could work with the large publishers on behalf of the small. But this was really being inside a large publisher and, and affecting their strategy and operations. Um, that takes us to the early 90s. And in the early 90s, um, we were just beginning to hear about something called electronic publishing. And it really existed mostly in the scientific and technical and legal world. It didn't really, this was not something that ordinary people did. Um, but then starting in the early 90s, you had the Apple Newton and you had the beginning of laptop computers. And you have the beginnings of the notion that people might actually read books on screens. That idea just beginning to peak in the early 90s. And I got involved with a couple of other consultants doing um, seminars on conferences 
on what we then called electronic publishing. And the first one we did in conjunction with Publishers Weekly was called Electronic Publishing and Rights um, in around 1992 or three. And doing that meant that I had to go talk to all the people along with my other, my consulting colleagues, talk to all the people who were doing experimental things in the various publishing houses. So pretty quickly, uh, we became an we became experts, um, and that in the then later in the nineties, a another company called Vista Computer Services um, suddenly had the same concern uh, had this big concern about electronic publishing as the guy who owned the company said I sell computer services to keep track of books in warehouses. What if there aren't any books? What if there aren't any warehouses? And and he thought, you know what, but my clients all need to understand this, too. So he formed something called the Publishing in the 21st Century Program, of which I was a principal. And we would do research and write white papers and um, and give conferences, all discussing what's going to happen. I mean, is this Amazon.com thing going to be real? Are people going to read on screens? What kind of screens? Should we have? Should the books have animation in them? Should the books have videos in them? Um, should the books have audios in them? All kinds of questions that people were at the very front of things were trying to decide. And um, I met a lot of people and developed a lot of information and made speeches and wrote papers and developed a reputation as a quote-unquote thought leader. And that really is, you know, in the end of the 90s, and that really has been the my career for, you know, the past quarter century has been about helping publishers anticipate, understand, and adapt to the digital opportunity or the digital fear, or depending on what side of things you're on at any moment. And you embraced reading on screens uh, wholeheartedly very early on. Uh, as I gather, uh, I believe yeah. on a Palm Pilot. Yes, that's what started me. Was a Palm. I started on a Palm Pilot in like 1998 or 99, and um, you know one of the things my dad had had taught me was because uh, he was very concerned about the uh, about the efficacy of of type design in terms of ease of reading is that very wide lines are very hard to read. Narrow lines are much easier to read. Um, and also that that uh, that ragged right is preferable to justified because it's easier for your eye to know where it is and not lose lose itself, jump to the wrong line because all the lines look the same. And the Palm Pilot was a narrow screen and ragged right. And it was so I was conditioned before I looked at it to think this would this will work. But it did work. And I loved reading books on the Palm Pilot. It was no problem at all. And, and the convenience of it was fantastic. So, uh, so I got sold on the idea very early by that. And then so making the adjustment to later to a Kindle and then to an iPhone was really no, no particular adjustment at all. Yeah, one thing I've always found um, peculiar about um, people who uh, don't really go for reading on screens is um, that matter of convenience that you talk about you just talked about for example if you're i remember commuting in london back around that time actually starting in 99 on the underground and you know you're crammed in like sardines and the, the contortions you would have to go into to sort of fold your 
your book, like get a small book that can fit in your coat pocket because you couldn't get it out of your pocket down at your waist. Otherwise you'd be feeling, feeling up the people next to you. So, you know, you, you had to like get a small book and fold it out very carefully and hold it right in front of your face. Um, and, uh, you know, the, it's, it's the, the utility that comes from being able to put hundreds of books in your pocket and then read them, just whip, you know, whip out the device when you're in line or commuting or anything like that always struck me as just totally reasonable and, and not incompatible with, you know, also holding a piece of paper in your hand if you want to at, at other times as well. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And as a matter of fact, I, had a, I live on the 17th floor of a 19-story building in Manhattan and uh, a now deceased neighbor um, always used to get into the elevator with a book and about the 14th floor. And I would and he would I think he would read a page, you know, between the 14th floor and the lobby. But 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 he just always did. And um, and that, you know, that seemed awkward. And I mean, with a with a book, a, a paper book, that's not a really easy thing to do. But he wanted to get all his reading time. Um, it would have been so much easier for him with an iPhone. Yeah. Um, but you know, I don't think he made it to the iPhone era. <laughs> um, uh since since your your career in in the book industry spanned has spanned so much uh, dramatic transformation um i wanted to ask you if there was if there was one particular moment where it struck you you know let's say there's there's you know sort of two separate sort of digital transformations one is the creation of books which happened before uh the other transformation mm-hmm. which was the reading of books but let's let's sort of focus it on the on the reading of books was there one particular moment where it really struck you um, wow, this is the way, this is going to be a huge thing going forward. Well, first of all, I have to be honest and admit that it has not become as huge a thing as I thought it would be, right? In other words, if, if, if you had asked me 10 years ago um, about how novels would normally be read today or, or straight text would normally be read today, I would not have thought that print would have sustained itself to the extent that it has. So, um, and I'm just talking about for reading now, not doing Print has lots of other value. Illustrated books are another question completely. Um, but, but so, so I, I'm, I'm not sure that, that, um, I'm not sure that my aha moments about, about, um, the degree to which people would adjust to doing all their book reading this way, it, it hasn't happened as much as I thought it would. I think the thing which which I figured out earliest relative to the rest of the world or the industry was verticality. And the fact that that when you had an when you had the internet suddenly it meant, and this this is something that occurred to me a long time ago. This is 20, 25 years ago. Holy smoke. I could read the story about that Yankee game in every single paper that runs one. I, I don't, I'm, it's no longer pick up the three that are at the newsstand. So, so in other words, everybody could now stuff themselves with whatever it is they were interested in. And it was no longer because you could get the, the 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 pieces from everywhere, and um, and gradually as we lay as we layered on the fact that 
the 200,000 books that were available in in uh, 1988 became the two million books that were available in in 2005, which become the 20 million books which are available today. Um, and the fact that gradually all the newspapers, all the magazines, all the everything everywhere is in this digital repository. Even before that was true, it was obvious that you, you you suddenly were you you have a surfeit of whatever it is you want. You want to read about Bob Dylan? You can read original stuff about Bob Dylan from now until you die and never duplicate because it's all there. And so the, the the that was the thing which which struck me early on was that 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 we were going that the, everything was going to verticalize because there was no longer a, 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 that, that, that people would just naturally become more and more intensely interested, more and more intensely involved in the things that they were already interested in. Now, I didn't really anticipate another aspect of that, which is that everybody gets, everybody's got their own set of facts and everybody's got their own news, which is another thing that has happened. So if you, if you don't believe that climate change is real, you can put yourself in a, in a bubble where the conversation won't disturb your 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 illusion, and that's not a good thing. It's but it's a real thing, and it's another aspect of verticalization. Yeah, I'll be asking you some questions about about that a little bit later on. Um, but that is that is as you, as you say, uh, connecting that to the concept of verticalization, or sort of you know. Uh, you know, uh, having a, a lot more content in a sort of on a very particular topic than you had in the past. Um, and access to it. And access I mean, to it. Right. Yeah. Um, speaking of things that didn't um, necessarily turn out the way people thought they would, um, one of the, I just wanted to approach this as sort of a story that has a beginning and basically has an end now, which is the story of the Nook. Um, mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, why that failed. Now that we have the the benefit of hindsight. Well, I, you know, I think that it, it, I think it failed because it's in a failed ecosystem. I mean, it's the short answer. Um, the Barnes and Noble has um, Barnes and Noble had a vision in the world of. Uh, print and 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 superstore retail that and they built a, cap a capability around that vision, but their but their response to digital change has been very sad, and the the nook uh, and 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 the and the failure of the nook is that that the nook is has been delivered by a uh, a company that is that is defending the. The old business model, the print, the print in store business model, um, and that's their primary focus, and um, that made it hard for them to compete with the Nook, because while Amazon was delighted to push ebook prices down to, you know, a dollar ninety nine or ninety nine cents or free or whatever it is, and they didn't care how much they were disrupting. The print business. They certainly didn't care how much they were disrupting the print and store business. I think that that um, that that the fact that the print and store business is the primary 
revenue and margin generator for Barnes and Noble affects everything. So what I would think about the Nook, I don't think there was anything particularly wrong with the Nook. My wife actually still reads on a Nook um, to this day um, and reads al almost all her books on it. And I think it works fine for her. Uh, I think that the they didn't they did they will never match Amazon selection because they didn't go out and get that huge number of independent writers that Amazon got to um, and they and so what happened was that initially they put nooks in stores and there were people who didn't really shop online they've shopped in stores and so and ebooks were a good idea and those people knew other people who had Kindles and so they had a they had a great market and they had they had it more or less to themselves, and they had a device that worked. There was nothing really. There's nothing wrong with the Nook, um, but but the fact is, over time, um, the dedicated device business goes away, really, because it's, it was just a, it was a way of getting things started. Be, basically, before there was Wi-Fi. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the if I think if Steve Jobs had invented the iPhone two years sooner. And or and if Wi-Fi had happened two years sooner, or if Kindle hadn't gotten started for till till two years later, it all would have been a different story. But at the time, they delivered a dedicated device. Kindle delivered a dedicated device because that was the only way to do it. Um, they delivered a dedicated device with connectivity. I can't remember how Nooks dealt with that problem at the beginning, but Kindle it was a really a big risk. Oh, I think actually maybe Nook. I maybe Nook made you download. No, I think it made you download to the to a computer. You had to be able to download to the device, but but now it's not about Nooks or Kindles. It's all about your smartphone or your tablet, um, and what uh, what software do you want to download to read on? And um, it just the BarnesandNoble.com was never particularly useful or successful. Um, it has always had a fraction of the audience of Amazon.com. And um, so they're sort of now reverting to, I think Nook probably gave them some business, protected business for a while. But when a person gives up their Nook device and moves over to their iPad, if that's what they do, then they're not really locked into Nook anymore. And there are reasons why others are particularly, particularly Kindle is a better place to buy. So I just, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just all part of the, of the um, dissolution of the massive franchise that is Barnes and Noble. Now it should be said borders went first, right? In other words, th there's a, there's an inherent problem being an incumbent and Barnes and Noble did as done better by double Surviving the surviving the digital revolution than Borders did, and Borders was always considered to be a real smart operator. So, um, on the one hand, they're they did they're not succeeding. On the other hand, they're playing a very tough hand. Yeah, um, I believe you uh, had a conversation recently recently with uh, Nathan Bransford, um, where uh, he published a, a post uh, uh, citing you at length about Barnes and Noble, and I I'll, I'll point people to that. Um, in the transcription for this. But one thing I, I learned from that conversation was just how important Barnes & Noble is um, to what you might call the conventional book publishing industry in the United States. 
Um, and so they, people in, in that world, um, as critical or, or, or cynical even as they might be about some of the decisions that Barnes & Noble makes, they obsessively watch the company. Um, and there was one particular thing I wanted to ask you about. It's come up on this uh, podcast a couple of times, um, but uh, part, just because I find it so interesting. But back in the autumn, um, I think it was the CEO of Barnes & Noble was quoted in media saying that one of the reasons sales were down was everybody's cowering at home watching election coverage. And it struck me, it struck me as remarkable because um, I just, it didn't strike me as a serious thought. Um, and I wanted to ask you what you, what you thought, thought of that, if you, if you heard it at the time, or what you think of that now, uh, if this is the first time you're hearing it. Well, it didn't, I didn't hear it at the time. But the thing is, I mean, Barnes & Noble is, it, Barnes & Noble is not having problems all by themselves, right? In other words, right. there's, a, there's a massive shift taking place here where people are, uh, buying online rather than going to stores. And that's true for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with, I mean, there was just a bookstore chain uh, somewhere in the Midwest that shut 34 stores. I'm trying to remember their name. And, but the, and what they said is, sorry, but the malls we're in have died. Right? Now, it, 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 it was the department store went first. They didn't go first. So, so the, the, the environment, the, shop, the shopping, the whole shopping environment has changed. So I think that the, the, uh, uh, it, it's not helpful to, uh, if you're running Barnes & Noble or if you're running any retail chain, to say, well, you know, unfortunately, there's going to be half as many retail stores uh, five years from now as there are now or 10 years from now, whatever the number is. And that means probably half for us too. Uh, and unfortunately, this you know this business is this business has a shelf life, um, and th th nobody wants to believe that. Everybody wants to believe they'll live forever. So they they try to do things that will make them live forever, but they can't live forever. And I'm not sure that you know I'm not I, I, that I, you, if you've read all this stuff of mine, you've read the fact that I. I tried to tell Barnes and Noble years ago they need to develop a smaller store, and Amazon is going to demonstrate that very clearly. I mean, I, I, I'm quite certain that Amazon, in two or three years, will have lots and lots and lots of small bookstores all over the place and inside of other people's stores, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, and Bar but Barnes and Noble had built itself on on the large store. They were the ones who perfected the large store and the ability to get all these titles to it and so forth. And so it's just very, very hard to accept that what you what was a brilliant idea that you executed on beautifully and which worked has been displaced by events in time. But that's basically what happened. Speaking of displacement, um, if Amazon does build out, you know, let's say thousands of smaller stores um, in the next decade or so and those stores can make you know stocking decisions based on the data that amazon is gathering about consumers just down to the neighborhood level um how do you think that will impact independent bookstores and i ask that partly because you know if you read the kind of uh 
talk around the public book publishing industry. There's talk of a resurgence of independent bookstores that's been happening sort of quietly in the last couple of years. Yes, well, I think that's that it's true that they have. It's, it's true that there has been a resurgence of independent bookstores. But let's remember the amount of shelf space that's been lost between the combination of Borders going under and Barnes and Noble reducing both the number of stores it has and the amount of space in each store devoted to books. So, so the and and the independents in general, independents in the seventies and eighties were big stores like Cody's and Berkeley, and there were I mean they were they were superstores before there were superstores. Now the independents are are little stores, um, and the. The best numbers I've heard are that there are in the neighborhood of 700 to 900 viable independents and that for a major publisher, they amount to about 8% of the business. Now, that's significant. It's important, but it's 8% of the business. And so I think that the and I don't really think that that's going to grow substantially. Um, I think that the. I, I, ultimately, that everything goes downhill to Amazon, and I think it's going to continue to do that until the government does something about it. I don't think that the industry is going to stop Amazon from from just continuing to um, aggregate a, uh, a sh- aggregate share. And um, they're very smart; they know what they're doing, and they've got all the advantages. So it reminds me, yeah, I've got a couple of questions I wanted to ask you about that. Um, you gave a talk a while ago on ethics and publishing, and this was around the time of the, um, you know, Hachette controversy and the U.S. government going after um, uh, some very big book publishing companies for allegedly fixing prices. Um, and you talked at the time about how... Um, if you say to politicians, I'm going to bring down prices for consumers, you know, that's, uh, it's catnip. that's catnip to them. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I guess I, I wanted to ask you about that um, particular controversy, because I, one thing I hadn't understood was the kind of apparent own goal that Hachette scored by sending its lawyers to D.C. Uh, uh, to... Oh try and encourage, I think it was the Department of Justice to go after Amazon. And then the Department of Justice turns around and, and uh, does things that aren't very good, uh, that were pretty, you know, they didn't go after Amazon, let's put it that way. Um, and one thing you said in that talk was that the big publishing houses collusion around the practice of agency pricing, um, quote, has to be seen as a very big mistake, end quote, um, even though you did not see it that way initially. And I was wondering if you could just give us your thoughts about that controversy and 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 why you why you came to see what they'd done as a very big mistake. Uh, well, the, the 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 mistake sort of falls into two categories. One is that they whatever they did, the they gave the Justice Department uh, a, uh, an actionable uh, the ability to act against them. Um, and the, by the way, the net result of that is that two companies have been strengthened, Amazon and Penguin Random House. Um, and in case of Penguin Random House, that's because Random House stayed out of the initial um, uh, Apple Store agency model. And so they steered clear of the collusion allegations. But the net result of that is 
that the dominant retailer and the dominant publisher were left unaffected and everybody who's trying to compete with them was negatively affected. That is not really helpful antitrust policy. Um, but the other, the other reason that I think that the publishers made a mistake is that, um, that the, the maintenance of the, of the high price is it is really is it is really a competitive disadvantage for them in many ways, and it's been successful in that it's protected the print business to a certain extent, right? The fact that the that the what I call the branded eBooks or the 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 big publisher eBooks are not dramatically cheaper than the print book in a store means that the bookstore owner is not embarrassed by having a, a client, a customer walk in and say, you're selling me this for 15 bucks and I can read the ebook for three, which is what they are afraid of. Um, and it's sort of what Amazon was doing to the, by, with, with controlling the pricing. Um, but in other words, they fought a big battle to win the ability to keep their books priced high. And that has a, and, and by the way, the, the discounting was being done out of Amazon share. So at the same time, they, they actually they reduced their own revenues. So the, the whole thing didn't really work out the way publishers would have wanted it to. And, um, and the, the net result is that you've got a, a basically a two-tier market where the books that publishers are really trying to sell as e-books are dramatically more expensive than lots and lots and lots of other ebooks that are, you know, are cheaper. So any ebook reader that is price sensitive is just not going to read what's on the bestseller list. They're going to be choosing from uh, choosing in other ways, and that's not really good for publishers. You know, it was always the other way around, right? That that Barnes and Noble was discounting the bestsellers. Right, the best sell, the best, and, and Crown Books, when which in the eighties and nineties was the discount bookstore, they only carried the bestsellers. So it used to be that the bestsellers were cheaper, and now in the ebook world, the bestsellers are the most expensive ones. So it's not it's not the way publishers would have designed this world to look. Yeah, thanks for that explanation. Um, I think uh, seeing ebooks priced as high as they often are. Um, from ebooks from you know big publishers is something that people find very confusing when they encounter yes. it, and that that explanation goes some way towards um, uh, letting people know why that is. Um, speaking of uh, the Department of Justice and uh, the Amazon Bezos Washington Post, I suppose too, um, uh, you've got a president um, who doesn't like Amazon very much. Um, do you think that? They might go after Amazon. Um, you know, with this guy, anything's possible. But the thing, the thing which is is saving us is, as odious as he is, he's that he's also that incompetent. And it's a complicated. It's really a complicated challenge to go after. I mean, if I what I think really should happen is that Amazon should be barred from publishing. Right? In other words, they control they control the uh, the distribution of books to a very large extent. Um, I don't have any really good suggestions about how to address that because they're 
you know, it's not it's not like you can say, no, no, you can't have it. No, you can't. These people can't buy their books from Amazon. They have to go someplace else. People are buying their books from Amazon because it's the best place to buy books and and um, and the best online merchant. So and you can't really tell. And I don't think it really works to tell them that they can't have brick and mortar stores. But I think it would make sense to say that any, anybody with that amount of control over the market should not be competing with the other manufacturers putting things into the market. And um, so that's, you know, that's one way I'd modify them. But but it's really complicated and difficult to figure out how to go after them in a way that's reasonable and fair. Um, and the the and I don't have much faith in um, the intellectual capabilities of the current administration to figure that out. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a that's a fascinating topic. What you're invoking there is the concept of unbundling. Um, I first came across it doing mergers and acquisitions in the electric or uh, in the you know regulated utility industry. And one thing that happened in Europe was that um, you know there there's sort of three elements to um, let's say electricity delivery. One is generation, one is transmission, and then one is the sort of last mile distribution. And what was deter- what was decided was that you shouldn't be able to control all three. Uh, levels, because then what mm-hmm. you're going to do is if you're generating the electricity, you're going to basically, to put it crudely, you're going to give favorable deals to your mm-hmm. distribution company. Um, yeah. and, and this translates you know, very well into media. And we're hearing it now with work concerns about net neutrality, for example, where yes. you know, if the person who owns the pipes uh, control also produces content, then they're going to give preferential content uh, treatment to their own content and you end up with the equivalent of um let's say your let's say your electric power company also makes toasters and it starts charging you less for the electricity you use when you use their toasters um Mm -hmm. uh and um it's it i had not thought i confess i had not thought about it before but uh the idea that amazon should be one way of controlling uh, a potentially negative outcome from Amazon's dominance would be saying, "Hey, you guys are awesome at uh, delivery uh, and discovery, but you shouldn't be making the content yourself because you're going to end right. up privileging uh, your own stuff." Uh, that's a really well. It's happening. Suggestion. It's happening. The best, the, the Amazon bestseller lists are increasingly uh, populated with Amazon published stuff. Now. Part of that is, of course, because they're, they, they, know, they know things about the readers and what they want. And, and part of that is because they're, they're, good at, they're good at marketing. And part of it is, who knows, that they may load those bestseller lists. We just don't really know. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a very challenging problem. And by the way, it has always been, you know, back in the late 90s. There were Pete, there were a bunch of publishers who said we shouldn't let Amazon make all this all the money on selling books online. We should create our own. Barnes Noble dot com started as books online, which was a joint venture with Bertelsmann. It was not Barnes Noble didn't even do that on their own. So books online was the competitor, and then there were noise about publishers forming a consortium so they could control these sales. Well, they would never have discounted the books and built the online market that Amazon did, and they would never have built a a company where the sale of books is you know whatever it is three percent of the company or four percent of the company. 
So they, they, that would never have been their ambition. They never would have done it. So it really, they could you couldn't compete with Amazon. Bezos had a vision of using the books as a stepping stone to a much, much bigger play. And nobody in the book business would have had that vision. So I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that anybody should be blamed for the situation that we're in, but but there's definitely Amazon's holding all the high cards. Another card that they hold that you've spoken about in the past, um, uh, in a talk I found on on YouTube, was um, that uh, authors become free agents at some point. And you said, "quote uh, Amazon is going to take down those other publishers one author at a time." Uh, and that, quote. that did not happen. I was just my, my so my question was going to be did that happen and and so the answer is no and and can can you talk a little bit about why you think it didn't happen? Well, it didn't happen. It, Amazon. I don't remember that particular piece, and I don't know when it was. But Amazon back around 2010 or 11 hired Larry Kirschbaum, who was the previously the publisher of Warner Books and Hachette, and um, and who's now an agent and who's a very um, skilled and knowledgeable and connected um, publishing editor and, and acquirer. And his job was going to be to, to beef up Amazon Publishing, and that's sort of probably when I was thinking along those lines. Well, it turned out he couldn't sign anybody up because the Barnes & Noble and, and the independent stores made it clear that they didn't want any, any of those Amazon books. And um, so it was pretty clear pretty quickly that Amazon was not going to get bookstore distribution on the books that they acquired. And big shot authors, it's not just about the money. They want to see their books in the stores and they want, and all of that. So it just, it, Kirschbaum's job there landed, lasted a couple of years and that was it. Now, when Amazon has stores, that changes. And if Amazon, if, even if Amazon's stores are small, let's just say for the sake of argument that Barnes & Noble has 500 stores and Amazon gets to the point where they have a thousand stores. Now, Amazon's thousand stores probably will do the business of 50 of Barnes and Noble's 500 or 100 of Barnes and Noble's 500. They won't be nearly as big, but it's a thousand places they can put a book in front of the public. And Barnes and Noble only has 500. So, and there are only 500 to 800 independents. So, when Amazon gets to that point, they can give a book as much physical exposure as anybody else can, and that may change the equation. Um, the other thing, frankly, is that I'm sort of expecting that Random House would start taking down the other four publishers one author at a time. Now, that does not seem to be happening. Um, why? I don't really know. Maybe Random House is not as, as cutthroat as they might be. Um, maybe the agents are doing a job of trying to maintain uh, a, a world with five competitive bidders, which they certainly would want. Um, but what, for whatever, whatever reason, you sort of start expecting that somebody with the bigger checkbook can start pop taking these authors out one at a time, and it hasn't really uh, happened in the case of Amazon or Random House. One big shift in publishing that in book publishing that I wanted to talk to you about that's happened in the last let's say ten years um, is around self publishing. Um, you noted in a recent post on your blog that Carolyn Reedy, the CEO of Simon and Schuster, remarked at the recent Frankfurt Book Fair in October that the share of the market taken up by self published books is growing. Um, and I wanted to ask you um, just generally your thoughts about 
what's happened to self-publishing in the last 10 years or so. And I'm, I'm saying 10 years because that's when the Kindle came out. No, that's, that's reasonable. And how do you, how do you see, how do you see, how have things changed in recently and how do you see things evolving in the next few years? Well, I think it's, uh, it's clear that you, you can successfully self-publish. I mean, that's, that there, there is a way, there are ways to get to the readers um, successfully in that did not exist 20 years ago when self-publishing was called vanity publishing because you ordered 5,000 books and they went into your garage and there was no way to get them out. Um, and that's no longer the case. Uh, there are a fair number of authors who have um, reclaimed their backlist, um, which is going to get harder to do. Publishers aren't going to let backlists go out of print the way they did, but they're was an era here where publishers, where authors were able to reclaim their backlist and self-publish their backlist and have a much greater margin on the sale. Um, they give up a certain amount. They're not going to be, um, they're not going to be in bookstores on a speculative basis because they don't deliver books that can be returned through self-publishing. But they certainly get all the online sales and uh, both print and digital without a problem. Um, I think that there will be an increasing support structure for self-publishing. I think you'll, you already are seeing that literary agents um, are facilitating it. Uh, there's, a, there's one new publisher called Diversion Books that was started by a literary agent called Scott Waxman. Um, there's, a, there's another major literary agency which had three or four people working on helping authors with self-publishing um, who were, you know, dedicated to that within the agency, uh, and the services uh, of all kinds, whether it's cover design or um, or rights selling in other markets and so forth. All of these things are getting more and more institutionalized, so that an author can really put together a little publishing operation. I think Ingram is uh, is they've got a program called Ingram Spark, where they give sort of full distribution to anybody who comes in the door and, and asks for it, more or less. Um, but I can see a suite of services being built up there as well, where it'll just make it easier and easier for a, a, an individual to, to play like a company. There are certain things, like putting out inventory that can be returned, that require a capital risk um, and certain amount of management savvy, that I think are always going to be a bridge too far for 99% of self-publishing efforts. So there's there's going to be, for at least for a very long time, a real role for publishers to play, quite aside from financing and um, and expertise. Uh, but there but there really are uh, things that require a, a, an operation at scale to uh, execute on. And if you don't have it, you're going to be missing opportunities. But 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 on the other hand, the author keeps a big, much bigger piece of the consumer dollar when they self-publish. So, you know, whether you you might be able to make the same amount of money selling 40 percent of the of the number of units. So it's 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 definitely a part of the business and will remain a part of the business. And I suspect that we'll also see more and more authors doing sort of hybrid stuff where they publish something short, for example, that doesn't really work as a book, and they self-publish that, or they do something that's sort of outside their 
writers are writers, and maybe what I am is a novelist, but maybe I have a, uh, a, a, a summer experience that makes a little memoir thing, and I'm not known for that, and nobody wants to pay me for it, but I'd like to publish it anyway. So I think that the, oppor- the opportunity is there. It's going to get used, and um, I suspect that it, it just becomes a permanent part of the landscape. Speaking of the landscape, um, one of the things that's dramatically changed uh, in the last 20 years or so um, is the availability of data um, on sales. And that can help uh, one plan marketing campaigns and indeed political campaigns as well. Um, And I wanted to ask you about Optically, um, which you co-founded, and what your thoughts are about the issue of, of data and book marketing more generally. Um, for example, just to pick an example, do you think that um, technologies that track people's reading and say they drop off after page 50 unless you kill the vampire or something like that, do you think that, that that's what, – what, what do you think about that issue? Well, there's a, there's a company that I, that I uh, have had a, had a couple of conversations with called Inkit, uh, which is a Berlin-based startup. And their proposition is exactly that. They have – uh, some vast number of people who have reading software on their computers and ink it rather than uploading books, uploads manuscripts, and they track the reading. And they sign up the books that everybody blitzes through without stopping, and they don't sign up the books where people quit on page 26, whether it's because they're disappointed about the vampire or not. They don't analyze. I don't know that they analyze that. They just simply know that if, if, if everybody loves it, that that must be the right thing. And so I think that, that that there's a certain amount of sense to that, although, you know, I'm sure I don't know what it took them to build up the large number of readers they've got that it takes to do that kind of analysis. Um, I think that the in general, that uh, uh, digital marketing becomes digital marketing becomes increasingly important and the tools for it, both specific to the book business and not. Just generally social marketing and digital marketing tools become more and more ubiquitous. The number of people who know how to do this stuff um, becomes larger and larger. So, yeah, I think that, that it, it becomes it becomes essential. Um, I think the big publishers have a lot of advantages, uh, presuming they are building up their lists of email permissions, people that they can send emails to alerting them to things, um, assuming that they're tying that back to um, what, they, what they're what they seeing in, the, in Facebook and Twitter and so forth about the reaction to various books and various other people's books. Um, so I, I think that they're, even before they get to Optically, which really helps them understand how Amazon looks at books. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I, I, I have to admit, I'm a little detached from the day-to-day of Optically. I, I was a founder. I was working very closely with Pete McCarthy when he basically thought it up. I brokered the uh, agreement with Ingram to begin with, um, but I'm not on the ground with this at all. But the original notion was that Pete really understood how Amazon looked at the world. So that he could anticipate how a how changing your Google Plus page could it could affect your Amazon uh, recommendation ranking, and that's sort of where it starts. But because Amazon looks very broadly at at the world in order to make these decisions, 
optically is then looking very broadly at the world, as well as Amazon. Um, and among the things that it's doing is it's helping publishers see where there's opportunity and where there's not. When they have thousands of titles on their backlist, where are the books where the conversation that's taking place this week suggests that you do something to help those books metadata? Right, because you can't touch all. You can't touch twenty thousand books every week. You have to figure out which fifty or which two hundred it's worth writing a new paragraph of copy for, based on the fact that there's a war in Iran or something, right. whatever it is. Right, and this is part of what um, what Optic Pete and the Optically team are um, skilled at. That I think that they'll be uh, helping a lot of publishers with. Um, my last question before we move on to talk about your climate change work um, is uh, of all the predict big predictions that you made uh, about the book publishing industry, which one were you most right about? Gee, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'd be hard pressed to say what are the big predictions I made. Okay. Um, I, it, 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 I have to say that, that I, I, I don't really keep score on myself very well. Um, I definitely know that I've been, you know, I'm, I'm, I know that I've been wrong about a lot of things, but you can't not be. I mean, it, 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 the, when you're when you're trying to look three years ahead or five years ahead or ten years ahead, um, that you're, you're bound to be. Um, I think that that I've got, uh, and I had a, I've had a very narrow view in some ways because I've really just thought about the book business. But I think that the the, the, the thing I got the thing I got most right is verticality and there are people who um, who took that lesson on board early and there then there are those who didn't and I think that 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 um, well like you were talking about uh, you you had a previous interview with my friend Jane Friedman and she talked about the enthusiast publishing that she did at F and W and they were one they were folks who really understood verticality because they understood that it wasn't about the fact that we have uh, books, videos, and magazines on gardening. It's about people who are interested in gardening. And um, and that, that it doesn't make, makes more sense for the, for the three different gardening product people to be talking to each other than it does for the book gardening person to be talking to the crafts book person. And... That was so they rewired their company around verticality. And I think that, that to a certain extent that's happened in a lot of places. But book publishers were very badly set up for that because in most cases the general publishers had imprints. But the imprints didn't have um, interest-defined lanes that they stayed in very often. Um, what Crown did versus what Knopf does versus what Penguin Press does is not defined by subject. So they so if you're at Penguin Random House and you want to do a promotion on cookbooks, you got to go to every single imprint in the company to pull together all the cookbooks, and that's just not efficient. And I think that that's another thing. That, that's one of the things that's going to still have to change in the big publishers over the course of the next five years is to be more vertical. Although they have, or you know, that sort of naturally going in that direction. Yeah, I remember. Fred, I didn't really answer that question, but that's okay. Oh no, no, you did. Uh, I think you did. <laughs> okay, uh, I, I said, you know very well. I thought um, uh, actually. Okay, good. Reminded me. Reminded me of one of the um, very uh, uh, 
striking examples you had when you're talking about verticality was, you know, if a lot of people bought the entire newspaper for the sports section. Yes. Um, and one thing yes. that, you know, the, the, you know, we were talking about this with respect to your, uh, you know, Barnes and Noble a little bit earlier, you were saying, you know, when, when something's very near and dear to you and it's an industry that you've worked on and dedicated your life to, it's kind of hard to um, contemplate a limited shelf life. And I think that, you know, the newspaper industry, I mean, you know, not only I, but, you know, sort of famously, the newspaper industry had a huge reckoning about what people really bought newspapers for. Well, actually, um, if you want to talk about something that I got right, that's one. Because I, I, I saw the crash of the newspaper business in the 1990s as inevitable. And um, and and it was just it, it for all the reasons that we're talking about now and and that that it would be and that there would end up. That it would be there would be a, a, you know a few national, two or three or four national papers, and they would be pretty hard for anybody else to make it make sense. And um, I think we're pretty much headed in that direction. Um, and now, speaking of directions, we're headed in. Um, uh, you've decided to devote your efforts to um, recruiting people in the fight against uh, climate change. Um, and uh, one thing I discovered doing research for this interview um, from your posts on Medium, is that you're a big supporter of a carbon tax. Yes. Um, and I and, you're, to, and you're in one of the places that has one. Yes. Yeah, I'm in British Columbia, the province in, um, on the west yes. coast of, of Canada, um, where we have uh, a carbon tax. Um, I'm not an expert on it, um, but it's, it's uh, at least in the circles I move in, um, uncontroversial here at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to ask you why you support a carbon tax as opposed to some version of cap and trade. Well, I don't oppose cap and trade. I hmm. think car- I just think a carbon tax is is simpler, faster, easier to understand. Um, I, I, if I thought that if I thought that cap and trade could be um, could be implemented more quickly, I wouldn't object to it. I just don't think it does. I think it's. I think people have a hard time understanding cap and trade, and it is by its nature very intrusive because it has to. You have to. Everybody's got to get the uh, the permits, and it, gotta, it keeps making decisions for you. Whereas the tax is more transparent; it's just simpler to understand. Um, I think, to me, the main question is not so much whether the revenue is raised by cap or cap licenses or or tax. It's really more to me more about where the what happens to the money, and um, and I'm a big believer in dividend, which is simply give the money that's raised back to the people pro rata, and the reason for that is that uh, number one you have to protect poor people from a carbon tax, and um, prefunding the money this way effectively does that. But the other thing is that the carbon taxes that we're talking about are way way too low to uh, deliver what they need to deliver. And if you do a dividend like this, two-thirds of the people get more money than the tax costs them. So if you tell them that the tax has to go up, um, it means they're going to get more money, um, which builds support for the idea of raising the tax. So that's why I like the full dividend, whether it's tax or cap and dividend. Um, and 
because I think we're 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 just talking about starting points here. Whether you, I think you're at British Columbia, you're at about fifteen dollars a ton, which is about fifteen cents a gallon at the pump, um, and we need two hundred dollars a ton. You know, one hundred and fifty or two hundred dollars a ton. We need to raise the price of gas by a buck and a half or two dollars a gallon, not fifteen cents a gallon or forty cents a gallon. Um, and that's and so that's part of why I support the the dividend because I think that'll get us there faster. Yeah, and you and you you um, made an important qualification there, which was full dividend. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why that qualification is important, because as I understand it, um, in you know. The world of climate change activism, uh, there is a large constituency that does not agree that with carbon taxes, there should be a full dividend. They think there should be a partial dividend. And so some of the money, you know, to sort of like really like, you know, look at it at a high level, some of the money should go back to people in the form of literally checks uh, to individuals. Um, but a lot of people argue that some of the money should go towards programs and incentives um, to uh, help fight climate change in other ways. Uh, yeah, that's not... Yeah. Is that not quite right? No, that, that's not an unreasonable point of view. I, 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 I consider that, um, I, I, unfortunately, the people who take that point of view uh, treat it as a moral argument. Um, I treat it as a, as a political and practical argument. And I think as a political and practical matter, I would rather provide 100% dividend um, and build the will for raising the carbon tax more, because I think it matters that it be high that it be high enough more than it matters exactly what you do with the money, as long as you're not screwing poor people. Um, the but the uh, but indeed the uh, the most devoted environmentalists and environmental organizations tend to prefer that the um, carbon uh, uh, that carbon tax or carbon cap revenue go to subsidize green energy in some way one way or another and i would prefer to make that a separate proposition partly because i think it that making it part of the tax has prevented us from getting the tax but also partly because if it it will tend to um, curtail the ability to raise the tax and there is nobody proposing a carbon tax that's anywhere near what we need to get to in the next five or ten years. So we need to not just tax carbon, we need to tax carbon in a way that will enable us to continue to raise that tax. And um, for people who are um, doing what you're doing now, um, advocating for things like carbon taxes and trying to, um, you know, turn the ship of the United States in the direction of um, things like the Paris Accord and things like that. Um, what can you do with climate change deniers, you know, at the head of the EPA and sitting in the Oval Office? Um, is it is is the focus on, you know, getting things happening at the municipal level and the state level? Well, I think that I think there's been a lot of that. Um, in other words, I think that there's definitely been, among activists I know, a shift in focus to the state and local level. I see this as a, uh, you know, we're still, this country is still composed of Democrats and Republicans. And the 
uh, Republicans have the uh, Republicans are badly split between the traditional GOP establishment and the Trump bistas or the the, the new the, the, the new populists. Um, the GOP establishment has a very rational position on taxing cartel. Um, the Trumpistas have no, obviously have, don't. On the Democratic side, there's a general consensus, I think, that taxing carbon would be fine. But again, you have the problem on our side that the activists want to control what happens with the money. And all the things that they want to do with the money are things that no Republican will ever support. So we're stuck. And where I'm choosing to put my efforts is to get Democrats to support the the uh, traditional Republican version of a of a carbon tax, which I think is just fine, um, and try to use that as a signal that it's bi- uh, being bipartisan. In, in other words, to steal the mantle of bar- bipartisanship for, to, for those people who still care about it, and there are some people who do, but also to shame some of the Republicans into supporting the proposal that comes from their own party elders, which none of them have shown any interest in doing. So um, I don't know exactly how successful this can be, how fast, but uh, we, we sort of have no choice. I mean, we, we're, we're going to fry ourselves unless we stop burning fossil fuels. And the surest way to slow that down is to raise the price of them. And um, so it's a really transparent about what has to happen. And I think we just sort of can't let the fact that the environment for it is difficult discourage us from trying because there are really no alternatives. Well, on that note, uh, I would like to say I'm glad to hear that you're uh, turning your energies, um, uh, your vast energies in that in that direction to help save us all. Um, there were things we didn't get a chance, although we covered a lot of ground, there were things we didn't get to touch on, like your um, your interest in sports uh, and sports writing. Um, um, yes. But um, I can put maybe a link or two uh, to that into the transcription of this um, uh, interview as well for other people. Well, that's, that's nice of you. I appreciate that. It's a, it's not as much a part of my life as it once was. I had a website called BaseballLibrary.com for years that was um, actually an important part of my of my revenue life, but it was sort of obviated by WikiLeaks. I, I mean, in defense of Barnes and Noble and and other stores. I mean, I've, it's happened to me too, right? I had a a web a website that was making money, and somebody came up with a new technology idea that basically mooted it. Um, and 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 that looking back, there are things I could have done about it and didn't. But um, in any case, I I appreciate the thought and about the sports stuff, and um, and I appreciate the whole conversation today. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, I had a lot of fun too. Uh, thanks thanks very much, Mike, for being on the podcast. Happy to. Thanks. See you soon, man. Thanks. Before I go, I'd just like to say thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of the Back Matter Podcast. And if you like what you heard, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and rate this episode. If you have any suggestions for people you'd like me to interview in the future, or any particular topic you'd like us to discuss on this podcast, you can contact me at len at leanpub.com. Thanks.